The Iron Flute, Case 59, Mugo's Concepts. Mugo, the national teacher, said, when one indulges concepts about sages and mediocrities, even if those ideas are as delicate as threads, they are strong enough to pull one down into the animal kingdom. Yogin Senzaki's comment. Mugo Daidachi, a successor of Baso Doitsu, was at one time the emperor's teacher. The name Mugo was given to him by the emperor and means no karma. Whenever someone came to him for spiritual guidance, he would say, do not nurture any concepts whether good or bad, whether about sages or mediocrities. He would also say, when you are about to die, if you cannot cut through the delicate threads of concepts about sages and mediocrities, you will probably be born as a donkey or a horse in your next life. Genro, the compiler of the Iron Flute, did not like Mugo's remark about transmigration. Zen has no notion of an individual soul crossing from this life to the next or of human life versus animal life. From one minute to the next, you are always about to die. When you muse about some concept, you are likely to go down and not come up. It's like dropping a coin into a calm pool. The ripples increase one after another. It makes no difference whether the coin is gold or copper. The moment a ripple is raised in the pool of our mind, the calmness is disturbed and the peace is broken. Was Mugo's no karma, the motionlessness of a mere stone Buddha? Fugai's comment, why refuse concepts about sages and mediocrities? Why be afraid of being pulled down to lower stages? A good actor never chooses among roles. A poor one always complains about his part. Genro's comment, if you want to get rid of concepts about sages and mediocrities, you must become a donkey or a horse. Do not hate your enemies if you want to conquer them. And then his verse. Sages and mediocrities, donkeys and horses, all of them pull you down if you hold even to the shadow of a single thread. Train well, monks. Live one life at a time without dualism or indolence. The old masters know your sickness and shed tears for you.
you may turn this way, and if you're hidden by the gong or someone's chair, please feel free to change your spot. When I bow before the altar, offering Buddha a bunch of daffodils, the fragrance of the flowers fills the sleeves of my robe. That poem was written by Nyogen Senzaki in 1946. I was three years old. Today we commemorate this wonderful, inspiring pioneer of Zen in America. Nyogen, like a phantasm. Thus we have Son Roshi's calligraphy. Nyogen, from the Diamond Sutra. Like a dream, like a phantasm. It was the name that was given to him when he was ordained on April 8th. Buddha's birthday, 1895. His life was a shining example of what it means to transform one's karma, to fully accept the bitter events, the loneliness, the grief, all the circumstances he underwent as the hard lessons of purification. And it's the same with us. The more we rail against our karma, just as we stiffen against the pain, the more we are pulled down into deeper misery. He made of the hardships of his life, a continuing process of karmic purification. And he said, in speaking about karma and consciousness, 
Only when we realize Buddha nature within ourselves can our karma be changed. Until the mind becomes refined enough to melt into its original Buddha nature, we are all blindfolding ourselves and do not know what we really are. Realization of Buddha nature can be achieved by anyone who makes the effort. Many of you know about Nyogen Senzaki and his life. And if you don't, you can read about it, his life, in uh, this book, Eloquent Silence. But just to summarize, he was found as a baby next to the frozen body of his mother, in Siberia. It's thought that his father was perhaps a Russian soldier. And he was given to the Senzaki family by a monk who found him in a small village where he lived and then lost his adoptive mother at the age of five and was taken in by his adoptive grandfather, who was a Pure Land priest. He was ordained in a Soto Zen temple and then went on to train in Shingon as well as Zen, and finally found his great teacher, Shaku Soen, Roshi, and went to Engakuji, Kamakura, to be a monk under him. But after about two years, he became quite sick and had to leave. And he went back to his village and began what he called the mentor garden, like a kindergarten, but through Dharma mentorship bringing the teachings of Buddha to children in the village, teenagers, and also some of the mothers. He was never able to get sufficient support to keep it going and thought, perhaps if I go to America, I can raise funds. And so when his teacher... Soin Shaku and his fellow uh, student, D.T. Suzuki, they had both trained at Engakuji at the same time. When they decided to go back to America for the second time in 1905, Nyogen Senzaki wanted to go as well. Again, he became ill, separated from them, going finally by freighter to Seattle and had a very brief visit with his teacher in San Francisco and then was on his own. He had very little English. He had no money. And he tried very hard to work various odd jobs. There was terrific racial prejudice against Asians during that period. And he often found himself attacked violently by others. But his guide was the Bodhisattva never despised from the Lotus Sutra always saying to his tormentors, 
you too will one day become a Buddha. And this true faith, this trust that developed throughout the uncertainty of his days and the love of his teacher, whom he never saw again, really brought the inspiring presence of Yogin Senzaki to dwell here at Daibosatsu Zendo. His own teaching took place first in a small Zendo in San San Francisco, which he started in 1928, and then moving to Los Angeles in 1931, he called his little zendo Tozen Zenkutsu, the meditation hall of the eastbound teachings. Bodhidharma came from the West. And here we are. We have this plaque over our zendo doorway the eastbound teachings of Nyogen Senzaki are right here. And as many of you know, he spent the war years imprisoned by the U.S. government with other Japanese nationals. He was behind the barbed wire of Heart Mountain, Wyoming, And after the war, continued staying in California, offering Zazen in his tiny apartment, giving talks in rented halls from time to time, and inspiring a small group of disciples, including Ruth Strout McCandless and Paul Reps, both of whom edited his translations and writings, and Shubin Tanahashi, through whom he found the poet monk Nakagawa Soen, who became our beloved teacher here, Soen Roshi, and their great spiritual relationship developed. And we celebrate Yogen Senzaki as Innen Honorary Founder. Innen means mysterious interconnection, cosmic interrelationship. So they, he and Soen Roshi, are both honorary founders of Daibusatsu Zendo. Yogen Senzaki passed away in 1958, and this book, Eloquent Silence, was brought out in 2008 in commemoration of the 50th year of his passing, and also the 40th year since the founding of New York Zendo Shoboji, and next year, 50th anniversary. So I wanted to read you one other poem by Nyogen Senzaki, which we used as the frontispiece of the introduction for this book. He wrote it at the age of 79, three years before he passed away. In a dream, I'm lying in a pagoda with my old teacher. When I awaken, I am on my single pillow in the Western Hemisphere. For more than 70 years, I have floated on the Alaya Sea in this illusory boat.
today's koan is from the Iron Flute, which was compiled by Genryu Oryu with comments by his successor, Fugai Hongko, both in the Soto lineage of Tenke Denson, who lived around the same time as Hakuin at Kakuzenji. And the Iron Flute was translated with comments by Nyogen Senzaki and was edited by his disciple Ruth McCandless Kangetsu. So in this very short case, three lines, Mugo warns us about indulging in concepts about sages and mediocrities. Concepts we all know well, fantasies, daydreams, notions, fancies, ideas, all the thought forms, the idle motions of the mind that go roaming through as we begin session. We don't even know what we're thinking about. It just seems to go on and on and perhaps harmless enough, but when those thoughts revolve around the self, as they so often seem to do, then they become entangling opinions, prejudices, seeing everything as out there, apart from me, and vaguely threatening separating the world into self and everything else and wondering about everything else and evaluating and discriminating and putting some beings on pedestals and disdaining other beings. So we have these uh, sages and mediocrities We may not think in those terms, oh, so-and-so is so wise. I really wonder how I can learn from that person. Oh, but that person's just a mediocrity, obviously doesn't have anything to offer. We may not put it in those words, but we often lead our lives that way. This is the merit the mental merry-go-round that we are all on when we first come to session. And Mugo warns that these thoughts, these ideas, these concepts may appear inconsequential, but They have force, these slender threads, even though they don't seem to have much in the way of substance. They have some force. One thought is always leading to another, as we know. Then what happens? They coalesce around themselves and we get preferences, we get irritations, We have the mental chatter. Why don't they, why can't we, why can't I get rid of all my, why I have to get some clarity. Oh, this is the wrong place for me. Obviously, I can't do meditation here. All this kind of formation is circling around what? The concept of I, the I concept, the most important concept of all, I, the great concept, yes. So these constructions, when we realize them, I constructions themselves are red flags, right? Uh Uh-oh, 
I am becoming enslaved by my conceptions about what I am, need, want, etc. And uh, many projections issue from that. Many invidious comparisons. As he puts it, sages and mediocrities, you may think of other such dualities. And all in all, it's kind of like a cow chewing its cud. Have you ever noticed how a cow ruminates? Hmm. This digestive process of rechewing the food is called rumination. And guess what we do? How much of our zazen is taken over by rechewing our food? Oh, that happened. Oh, she said. Oh, he did. Oh, this is rumination. We are ruminating on the cushion. We call it zazen. Replay, rewind. Uh huh. Rumination is the ruination of samadhi. Have you ever noticed? So we come to session and we're determined, right? We're determined to clear our minds of such cud chewing. Crud chewing, right? Crud chewing. To be present. And we soon discover how locked into the past and the future we are. Where is that present mind? We see in our silent sitting all the ways we've caused harm. Maybe it starts out that we see all the ways harm has been done to us. That's usually the lead-in on the replay, but also, little by little, what we've done. And, you know, this is past speech, past action. And feeling this deeply as we continue our sitting We may have a sense of real regret. And that regret is absolutely necessary. Why? It becomes motivation. It It leads to resolve to change, right? Despite what Edith Piaf spoke and sang about, I won't sing it to you, but she said, no, I regret nothing. So Mugo says, we must cut through the delicate threads of concepts. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to notice that we are engulfed in all of this conceptualizing, right? We have to have the courage to see why we're so distracted, what we're running from. To face ourselves directly is the first essential step. We may not like what we see. And that's really important to stay with it. Okay, go deeper. No more justification. This is part of that resolve, right? To see how many times we have shirked from what it is we need to do. How we've shrunk away from the kind of courageous being with what is coming up the conceptualizing we do on the cushion is all a part of this fear. So to have this resolve, no more blaming others. Just to be able to say that. Yes, my life has been difficult. Yes, I have experienced really severe
What? What would you say? Severe what? Misfortune? Treatment at the hands of others? Again, keeping those others at bay. We can never recover. We are still doing rewind, rewind. So we have to enter this process of karmic purification that Nyogen Senzaki did moment after moment all of his life. Only when we realize this, he said, only when we realize our true awakened nature can we be free from the karmic entanglements And residing in a monastic environment, even some of you are here only for five days, the seeing into the truth of our lives becomes even more acute. We see through the little falsehoods we've told ourselves. We become aware of everything on such a subtle level. Everything is apparent. A-P-P. Also, some of us have parents like that, right? The shadow of a negative thought is picked up even when there is no manifestation in speech or action. Have you noticed that? This is what our zazen brings. This kind of acute sensitivity. The ripples are raised on the pool. And here in this monastery, we have session after session. Our lives are given over to dharma work, to waking up work, to sitting and letting go, letting go, letting each thought, each concept, each notion go before it leads to the next, before it creates chains. And if we do this again and again, we definitely gain more proficiency. We are able to be more sensitive, to respond more quickly from our hearts. We call this life choiceless. But it's not passive in any way. The more we see, as Soko Morinaga Roshi put it in his book, wonderful title, Novice to Master, an ongoing lesson in my own stupidity. It's what we all are going through. Mediocrity to sage, sage to mediocrity. An ongoing lesson in my own stupidity. And perhaps this brings dismay. And the dismay can lead to great resolve as well. We can be spurred on by the recognition that we have been creating all kinds of causes that have some harmful effects. And that by this recognition, 
we can stop. We can deeply vow to change. I think that the more we give ourselves over to Zazen in this sincere way, not trying to hide anything, really being earnest about the ways in which we feel we have caused harm, the more we can see that we are really an unreliable narrator of our own lives. Because we've told ourselves a lot of fictions, conveniently enough. What if we just drop it? All of it? If we're the unreliable narrator of our own lives, then what about other people's lives? The ones we're calling sages or mediocrities, the ones that we've been discriminating against for whatever. Reasons that stem from a kind of uh, conceptualizing based on habit formations that we haven't even noticed, that have been pulling us here and there, hither and yon. And they've clouded our original, clear, mirror, mind. But we also can realize in this process that they have no substance. These passing fancies are mere notions based on conditioning. And the conditioning may seem to have the force of definition, of defining who we are. We may identify ourselves with this kind of negative conditioning and therefore feel bereft, feel that we can never pull ourselves out, never be free. But they are like a dream, like a phantasm. To see them as they arise, to allow them to fall away, there is no need to cling to anything. There is nothing that demands our reactivity. When we respond fully from our heart, we are not creating the kind of karma that drags us down, that causes us to swirl in blind passions and pursuits. We all know that every thought, every word, every act has consequences. So when Mugo was giving guidance, he would say, if those Ideas are indulged in. They may be as delicate as threads, but they will pull one down into the animal kingdom. Or when you are about to die, if you cannot cut through the delicate threads of concepts about sages and mediocrities, about the people you have determined are worth caring about, and the ones you have decided are not. 
you will probably be born again as a donkey or a horse. So being pulled down to the animal kingdom, as some of you know, there are six realms in Buddhist cosmology. What's the lowest realm? Hmm? Hell, yeah. And just above hell, Hungry ghosts. And just above hungry ghosts? Woof, woof. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Animals. Four-legged beings. We are animals too. But we have two legs. We are walking. So like humans. Next. And then above humans are the asuras, the fighting gods. Between the humans and the devas, the deity realm, the Tushita heavens. Now this is not a matter of doctrine, okay? You don't have to believe in hell, but you certainly have experienced it. Maybe even in the last sitting. These six realms we are experiencing in the space of just a few moments, a day, let alone a lifetime. So thinking about the uh, six realms, I remembered a section in Sogyal Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And he asks, on behalf of some of you here who are looking quite skeptically at me, Do these realms actually exist externally? They may, in fact, exist beyond the range of the perception of our karmic vision. Let's never forget, what we see is what our karmic vision allows us to see and no more. Okay, another way of putting this is because of our conditioning, we are, our ability to see is colored, right? Is, is shaped, is occluded, is obscured, however you want to put it. We can only see what our karmic vision allows us to see. Just as we in the present, unpurified and unevolved state of our perception... Now, I don't know who the hour is there. Probably nobody here feels that way. But we'll allow him to speak that way, okay? Because I know that here there is nobody who is unpurified and unevolved. He says, Just as we can only be aware of this universe, an insect might see one of our fingers as a whole landscape in itself. We are so arrogant that we believe only seeing is believing. Okay, so from an insect's point of view, seeing is believing. This is an entire universe, right? What universe are you sitting in? Just as limited from human vision perspective. Then he says, yet the great Buddhist teachings speak of innumerable worlds in different dimensions. 
There may even be many worlds very like or just like ours. And several modern astrophysicists have developed theories about the existence of parallel universes. How can we possibly say definitively what does or does not exist beyond the bounds of our limited vision? (coughs) Then he says, the quality of life in the realm of the gods may look superior to our own when we look up and we see all those happy deities just lazing about. They have all the, you know, saunas and the, everything is given to them the best. Well, we have kind of a godlike existence here, don't we? Most wonderful food, the most beautiful surroundings. So, We may not be so far after all, but anyway, he says, may look superior to our own, yet the masters tell us that human life is infinitely more valuable. Why? He imagines the gods as tall, blonde surfers, lounging on beaches and in gardens flooded by brilliant sunshine, listening to any kind of music they choose, intoxicated by every kind of stimulant, high on meditation, yoga, body work, like California, he says. (laughs) But here's the important thing. Because of the very fact that we have the awareness and intelligence that are the raw materials for enlightenment as humans... And because the very suffering that pervades this human realm is itself the spur to spiritual transformation. Pain, grief, loss, and ceaseless frustration of every kind are there for a real and dramatic purpose to wake us up to enable and almost force us to break out of the cycle of samsara and so release our imprisoned splendor. Isn't that wonderful? So we really have to bow down with tears of gratitude to all the things we have been complaining about. Right? All the mediocrities that haven't been that have been inhabiting our lives, and all the difficulties that we have experienced. And this is where formal training comes in. It is absolutely necessary, since we aren't sprawled about in the Tushita heavens, since we are in this human life, to train so that we can release our imprisoned splendor from its bonds, so that we can experience liberation and extend loving kindness to all beings, which is simultaneously waking up. We don't wake up alone. And so for us to realize that we must not squander this rare and precious human life is why we are here. We cannot afford to wander aimlessly. We must seek out the rigors of practice to give us the guidance that we need. In his comment, 
Yogin Senzaki says that Genro, the compiler of the Iron Flute, did not like Mugo's remark about transmigration. Of course, we don't believe, as Hinduism has it, in a soul that takes new birth, same soul going from one lifetime to another. And there's another aspect of why Genro disliked Mugo's statement, and that is that when we act from awakened mind, we are not doing so for the sake of merit. We are not doing so so that we can be assured that next life we will go to this realm of the gods, nor from fear of hell. You can imagine a kind of uh, literal understanding of what Mugo said. Oh, I don't want to get pulled down into the animal kingdom. I'd better be good. We act from trust in the awakened mind. And in Buddhism, although there isn't this transmigration of a soul, there is the notion of the alaya consciousness, the storehouse consciousness, particularly in Yogacara school of Mahayana Buddhism, in which karmic seeds are held as the energy moves from form to form, from life to life, carrying with it some subtle trace or scent, potentiality, predilection, And karmic rebirth is a way of seeing how that alaya consciousness then gives rise to a new life form that carries with it something of the lessons learned from the prior life. Or perhaps not learned. Some of you know the koan Hyakujo and the fox the old man who is condemned to live 500 lifetimes as a fox for answering a question. Does an enlightened person fall under the yoke of causation? And saying, no. (sighs) Immediately, fox! 500 lifetimes as a fox. Worse than a donkey or a horse. But these teachings on karmic rebirth are, again, something to spur us on, not out of fear, not out of some kind of blind doctrinal belief, but as the vital push that we sometimes need to investigate, to do the introspection, that brings us to clear understanding. The other day we were reading the Vimalakirti Sutra and there was a wonderful passage that has a lot to do with this actually. So allow me to read it. It's in the section called Vision of the Universe. And the layman Vimalakirti says, Reverend Shariputra, death, in quotes, is an end of performance. And rebirth, in quotes, is the continuation of performance. 
So what was your performance last life? There's some little thing there, right, that's carrying over that performance. It's an end of that performance, but it's a continuation of the next performance. And then he goes on, but a bodhisattva who dies does not put an end to the performance of the roots of virtue. Again, these are the seeds in alaya consciousness, right? The roots of virtue are there from that life. And, he says, a a bodhisattva who is reborn does not adhere to the continuation of wrongdoing. That's simple enough, right? Because of the practice that we are doing. Whether you want to see rebirth as next sitting or tomorrow, or next life, it doesn't matter. What matters is what you do now, the thought you have now that leads to the word you use, that leads to the action that will be the roots of virtue and that will not lead you to adhere to the continuation of wrongdoing. This is such a profound work. I really urge you, if you have not been here, to hear it every morning. The holy teaching of Vimala Kirti. Yogin Senzaki says, Zen has no concept. Exactly. No concept of an individual soul, no comparisons of sages, mediocrities, donkeys, horses, gods, demons. Just from one minute to the next, he says, you are always about to die. That's all we need to know. If we really take that seriously, and those of you who have lost a sister, a spouse, a child, a parent. Know. Know this. You're always about to die. So when you muse about some concept, when you are wasting your right here, right now awareness, you are likely to go down and not come up, he says. And the ripples of musing are increasing all the time. It makes no difference whether the coin is gold or copper. If you think, oh, sages or mediocrities, oh, if it's a gold coin, it will somehow not have those bad ripple effects. No, anything. No discrimination. The moment a ripple is raised in the pool of our mind, the calmness is disturbed and the peace is broken. Then he asks a very interesting question. Was Mugo's no karma, the motionlessness of a mere stone Buddha, This is the name that was given to him by the emperor, right? You remember? 
Mugo means no karma. As you may have noticed, life is messy. Struggle is essential. We can't do spiritual bypassing. We're not here to become perfect Zen students sitting in full lotus without a single trace of a ripple going across our faces. Right? We're here to be spurred on. Not in some hierarchy of sage and mediocrity or great teacher and lowly student, but to realize our true nature. This is it. Then Fugai, Genro's Dharma descendant, says, Why refuse concepts? Why be afraid of being pulled down? What's wrong with concepts? After all, they can lead us to realization as long as we don't attach to the discriminating good or bad. Be willing to be stupid. Be willing to make mistakes. Be willing to find out by getting down in the muck and mire. Someone asked Joshu, you are so evolved. Where will you go after death? Joshu said, I'll go to hell ahead of all of you. The questioner was shocked. And Joshu said, well, if I don't go first, who would be waiting there to save people like you? (laughs) And this is what we're here for, to be willing to go to hell. And hell is, as you well know, many, many hell realms. People are suffering in wherever we go, not just our own miserable pain and irritation and exhaustion and whatever else you may be feeling, but everywhere we go, we must be willing to go to hell and save people like us. And Genro, finally, last part, says, If you want to get rid of concepts about sages and mediocrities, you must become a donkey or a horse. Just become what you think you are separate from. Become what you have decided is not me. The beings that you have indicated are separate from you, the ones you fear as your enemies are the ones you must embrace within yourself and around you. Become one with negativity. Become one with your delusions. Don't hate them. To hate bono mujin segon don is a way of really investing your delusions with more power. So he says, do not hate your enemies if you want to conquer them. Don't think that your delusions comprise who you are. Just embrace them joyously. Be one with your pain. Enter into hell and you will find a great heavenly realm. And in his verse he says, Train well. Live one life at a time. This is it. This one moment is it. 
without dualism or indolence. The old masters know your sickness and shed tears for you. How do they know? They, too, are human beings going through this process of purification. They have such compassion for us. And what must we have? Compassion for ourselves. Thus, we can requite their care. 